This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's been eight years since Donald Trump was elected president. Today, we're taking a look at how U.S. foreign policy has changed after his presidency. Some, like journalist and author Alex Ward, argue that for decades, U.S. foreign policy was aimed at creating a more interconnected and globalized world. It would lift all boats economically and in the process create a more democratic world. Trump's presidency shook the very foundations of what the U.S. traditionally tried to achieve abroad. His administration pushed a populist agenda, strained alliances, and praised dictators. Here he is speaking at his inauguration. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. So how has the Biden administration taken on the challenge of repairing U.S. global relations in a post-Trump world? Alex Ward joins us after the break to discuss his new book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Later on, 1A's Todd Zwillick joins us to talk about the role U.S. foreign policy will play in the upcoming elections. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Joining us now is Alexander Ward. He's a national security reporter for Politico and author of the new book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. You might recognize Alex as one of our News Roundup guests. Alex, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, let's just start with the title of the book, The Internationalists. What is internationalism? Internationalism is is a sense that the U.S. Can, must still act very deeply in the world, must still act very, uh, uh, you know, strongly, but we should do so with allies, that there's actual value in working with other countries and working with international institutions in order to achieve American objectives. In contrast, if you remove the inter and you just have nationalists, you have an America first worldview, which is not necessarily eschewing alliances, but it is just that America is going to achieve what it wants to achieve regardless of what that means for others. That it is about America doing what it must do on its own if it has to. Uh, It's a very different 
it seems somewhat similar, but they're very different because to prioritize working with alliances and allies and multilateral institutions includes maybe giving up just a little bit of your goals and what you want to achieve in order for a broader sort of, you know, move slower and go further uh, worldview. Whereas America First, the, the vision is you can move faster. Uh, and But, you know, there are critics that say you won't go as far. Now, you start the book um, taking us to Donald Trump's win in 2016 through the experience of Jake Sullivan. Who Who is Jake Sullivan and, and what is his role in the Biden administration? Yeah, he's the national security advisor, which is arguably the most important position in terms of American foreign policy outside of the president. You could argue the secretary of defense or secretary of state, but in a world where the White House is pretty much in totally in control of foreign policy, that makes the national security advisor a very, very powerful figure. Now, now, Jake Sullivan, he likes to go by Jake, by the way. So Jake, he's next to Hillary Clinton as she's conceding to Donald Trump in 2016. And one thing, you know, he was uh, her right-hand man. He served in the Obama administration. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He's, he's been part of the traditional establishment foreign policy thinking for a long time. And here he is next to someone who upholds that view, losing to someone who eschews that view. And Sullivan is thinking, okay, you know, Trump didn't necessarily win on the strength of his foreign policy, but he didn't lose based on his vision either. So what is it that appealed to people? And he spent four years out of power trying to figure out what it was that appealed and and create his own vision with others, I should note, um, that eventually came into this catch-all term called a foreign policy for the middle class. And that has been the underlying intellectual um, you know, heft that the Biden administration has been using when they make pretty much any foreign policy decision. So what is that foreign policy for the middle class? The, the general idea is that any foreign policy decision or action has to benefit the everyday American and have to answer some pretty theoretical type questions, some of which would be, why should we extend the nuclear umbrella to South Korea? How does that benefit a coal mine in West Virginia? Why is the U.S. and NATO? How does that benefit uh, a farmer in Kansas? And they'll go and answer it in sort of this visceral way. Take Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The reason we have we the U.S. and I'm speaking as if I were them. Mm-hmm. The reason we have to defend Ukraine and stop Russia there is because otherwise they will go into a NATO country or another European country, requiring the U.S. to send troops and more money down the line. In which case, we lose American sons and daughters, we lose more money, we lose more time and resources, which actually ends up being more expensive down the line. And we should note that we're giving m- more. Uh, excuse me, we're giving. Uh, older weapons to the Ukrainians for us to then make newer weapons for our military. Now, that's great for the strength of our own armed forces, but it also means manufacturing jobs for people in Ohio and Alabama and Mississippi and and Texas and elsewhere. And so there is a tangible middle-class benefit that there will be jobs thanks to this program. And the administration didn't do a good job making that argument earlier. It started to do that more so now. And again, that's all part of a piece of this middle class vision. So how how much of this new direction or this rethinking was about actual policy change and how much of it was about how policy is communicated to the public? It is about policy change, but I don't want to discount the fact that this idea, the fact this rethinking is born out of the trauma of losing to Trump. Without a Trump victory, you do not get a foreign policy for the middle class. You get a more traditional democratic foreign policy under Hillary Clinton. You wouldn't see much change. You'd see more continuity. The fact that now under Biden, you're seeing elements of Trumpism. They would probably prefer I use populism, but elements of Trumpism in their thinking when it comes to putting export controls on China, when it comes to immigration policy, when it comes to talking about the manufacturing benefits of of you know defending Ukraine – all of this, it, it is true that there's political messaging in that. We can't d- d- discount that. But you do – political reframing and political messaging does come from policy. 
and they are trying to reframe the way America does policy. The fact that Biden, for example, whenever he talked about the defense of Ukraine or any other situation, goes, do not start World War III, right? And do not, let's not send American troops. You can argue, of course, you know, that's just an unpopular thing to do after 20 years of war in Afghanistan or Iraq, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is also a counter to where Trump's whole thing was, which he keeps talking about, don't start World War III. So they have, they have some similar tendencies and similar visions, but very different ways to get there. Well, I want to look back at some of the decisions made under the Trump administration that that marked a clear departure from U.S. leadership and foreign policy since World War II. In May of 2017, then-President Trump uh, addressed NATO and told them the following. I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. During that same meeting, Trump didn't explicitly state support for Article 5 in the NATO Charter, and it states that if one NATO ally is attacked, every other member of the alliance will consider that an attack of violence against all members. So how did that 2017 meeting with NATO foreshadow what the next three years of a Trump presidency was going to look like? It scared them quite a bit. And we should note that NATO countries you know, have increased – there's a lot of – have increased their defense spending. As of just recently, NATO announced 18 of the 31 members, soon to be 32 uh, members, you know, reached that benchmark. Uh, but we should note, you know, Trump, as much as he's denying now that he wants to withdraw the U.S. from the alliance, if you read John Bolton's book, there's a startling scene in it in which Bolton is saying – um, you know, that Trump basically said, I'm going to get out today during a meeting at NATO and that he was at the table and he turns to Bolton and, and goes, can I do it? Should I do it? And Bolton goes, walk up to the line, but don't do it. That's how close we came if, if we're to believe Bolton's account. So there's no question that in a second Trump term, we might actually see a withdrawal or at least a real, you know, a diminution of, of America's role in that alliance. Biden, of course, has gone full throttle into support of NATO. He's felt it in his bones, right? He was three years old when World War II ended. He sees how NATO has been very helpful. Uh, and he has, re- he has rallied Western countries uh, to, you know, worked with Western countries to, to understand America's still with you. We're here, right? America's back. And we need you if we're going to help defend Ukraine. So it's a very different vision. If you just care about NATO and transatlantic relations, it would be very different in a, tr- in a second Trump administration versus con- a continuation of Biden. Let's head to a quick break. Coming up, we dive into the challenges the Biden administration has faced in the last four years to shift U.S. foreign policy after Trump and ask what role U.S. foreign policy will play in your decision for the upcoming presidential election. This is Mary in Minnesota. President Biden's foreign policy um, history is very important to me in my voting decision, and all of his decisions um, overseas have been excellent so far until he's been condoning um, Israel's murder of 30,000 Palestinians in Gaza. More in a moment. Stay with us. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. Uh, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.
There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini-expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Okay, Alex, now... Joe Biden is not a new a new politician on the scene. Um, he was the U.S. Senator, Delaware, from 1972 to 2009, before serving as vice president for two terms alongside President Barack Obama. And in your book, you note that his views on U.S. foreign policy have changed a lot since he first became a senator. Walk us through maybe some pivotal moments in those changes and, and how the, that first-time politician Biden differs from the President Biden today. Well, I think two ones stand out, especially for a more modern-day context of his presidency. One would be his uh, – he was staunchly, almost you know, irrevoc- irrevocably pro-Israel in the Senate. Now, he's very pro-Israel now, but he's talking much more as president and, and a bit as vice president about the Palestinian cause, about the plight of Palestinians in general, about the need for two-state solution. Uh, and he's been more critical, I think, of Israel as president than he has been as a senator. There's, there's that. Afghanistan would be another or sort of America's wars, right? I mean, he was he voted for the war in Iraq that ended of course before he became president, but he was also supportive of the war in Afghanistan initially in the Senate, and then as a vice president he realized that war was going to be tough to win and decided ultimately in the end the best thing to do would have this have this counterterrorism plus strategy that he developed funnily enough with his uh, top aide at the time a guy named Anthony Blinken who mm-hmm. we happen to know as Secretary of State now. And that idea was a few American troops stay behind. They basically just have, as it sounds, a counterterrorism mission against al-Qaeda, et cetera. And that would be enough. Enters his presidency. You know, his son Bo dies, which uh, President Biden uh, attributes to his service in Iraq, although there's some questions around that. But still, that's what he attributes attributes it to. And basically, when he arrives in in 2021, he asks his team, okay – it's, time, it's probably time to get out, right? And we have to recall that Trump signed a deal with the Taliban to get out, and Biden wanted to honor that. But he gave his team a chance to, to convince them that there was a war worth winning. They couldn't, and so he withdrew. And so those are kind of two, you know, in, in, a, in a short amount of time, two pretty big changes for Biden. So the, the complete pullout of Afghanistan was announced in August 2021. And, and as you say, that ended 20 years of U.S. military presence in the country. And the Taliban took over Kabul very soon after. I cannot and will not ask our troops to fight on endlessly in another country's civil war, taking casualties, suffering life-shattering injuries, leaving families broken by grief and loss. This is not in our national security interest. I want to hear about the reaction to that decision, both domestically and from U.S. allies abroad. Let's start with the domestic front. Within the Biden administration, what was he hearing from people around him about this decision to completely pull out? Well, he knew from the discussion, they had about four months of discussions, right? So the decision to leave was in April of 2021. And then you know, he announces it in May. But he had heard for four months from the, from the DOD, especially the military, saying we should leave at least 2,500, 3,500 troops behind because otherwise 
the Taliban's going to take over. Now, by, now, the intelligence that they had at that time, when Biden made the decision, this is, I think, one of the newsier elements of the book, is that it, was eight, it would take 18 to 24 months for the Taliban to take over Afghanistan. So with, so with that timeline, the team went, okay, well, we have time to get Americans out, the military out, out I mean, Afghan allies of the, of the United States out. And of course, they didn't. You know, the Taliban took over at a much quicker time. But so the domestic response was like, look at those horrible scenes, right? We had 13 service members killed in an attack. We had just awful humanitarian strife outside of the airport itself. So the reaction was pretty horrible because the scenes were terrible. At the same time, you had administration officials and others say, but look at what we had to do. Look what we did when we improvised. We got 120,000 or so people out in the greatest airlift in modern you know, history. So there's sort of a nuanced picture here where you do have the chaos and devastation and, and just the, the horror of what that what that decision brought on, but also a pretty epic logistical feat uh, that, you know, modern military history and, and humanitarian history will remember. And, and how has the administration handled the fallout from that decision? Because there were lots of criticism, not just about the logistics around getting people evacuated, but who got left behind and the state of Afghanistan now. Yeah, it's it's worse. There's no question that it's worse. And I don't think the Biden administration expected it to get better. Uh, but I don't think they expected it to get this bad this quickly. And one of the things I note in the book is, you know, the Biden administration, when they made the decision to withdraw, they expected chaos. I don't think they expected it to be this chaotic. And so what you're now seeing is, look, Biden still believes in the decision to withdraw. He said it countless times when as it was happening. He didn't ask for anyone to resign. No one offered their resignation. To this day, he still thinks it was the right strategic decision. I'm sure you ask anyone privately, they would say, we wish, you know, X, Y, Z thing had been done better. But overall, it was the right call. And Republicans are hitting Biden over the, over the head with this still, right? And that was a news story based on my book about how uh, Biden does not regret the decision. The Republicans saying, how could you not regret it based on everything we've seen? Naturally forgetting that it was Trump who initially wanted to leave. He did not do it. Uh, but he did sign the initial deal that led to the inevitable withdrawal. And and what about the response from U.S. allies? Um, because there were relationships involved in this decision um, that that were not necessarily consulted before Biden made this this decision to pull out. No, that's right. Blinken actually went to Europe as, as Biden was saying, "Go test the waters, go see how our allies feel." And he and Blinken came back saying, "They're not for this." Our allies are not for this. And Biden said, okay, write me up a memo, get me, get me some talking points, figure out, see where we are. And Blinken eventually, you know, goes, look, we can do this. Our allies will eventually come aboard. But there was genuine anger. And there was a sense from allies that you're not going to withdraw unless we all basically sign off on it, right? Because we have to remember, you know, we mentioned Article 5 NATO before. The only time it's ever actually been invoked was after 9-11, right? Allies coming to America's support, which in part leads to the Afghanistan uh, multinational mission. But the allies weren't really consulted. They were told that America was thinking about it. But Biden says, we're leaving and we're leaving and that's it. And so allies had to kind of go along with that. And there's this really awkward moment uh, in a public event. You have Blinken, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, in which Stoltenberg is basically hearing about this decision for the first time. He's angry. But now he has to go and give a public address next to those two men and basically say, look, of course, you know, we went in together. We'll leave out. We'll leave together. And Austin's like, you know. Yeah, I know my military folks, you know, we made it, we set our peace, but now we're going to execute. And it was just, you could feel the tension from usually good friends and, and allies. Is there, when I think about how we talk, started this conversation, talking about um, foreign policy for the middle class, but also this 
desire to exist in the world, the U.S. under Biden, to exist in the world as part of a system of allies, right? So this feels like a place where maybe those two ideas rubbed up against each other in a way that that wasn't altogether successful or comfortable. Absolutely. I mean, look, there's not, there's not a, no, every administration has their doctrine or their thinking and blows by it all the time, right? And in this case, this was a moment where Biden just could not be convinced to stay. No, I think no amount of allies, no amount of aides could have convinced him to stay unless somehow the military went and they went asked and they were asked, present me your plan for a victory in Afghanistan, what it looks like, how we achieve it, how long it will take and what it will take. After four months of discussion, no one could convince the president, and everyone sort of knew where he was. One person I talked to for the book said, look, it, it, this wasn't a sham review, but everyone knew where, where this was going to end up. But in fairness to, to the White House, the people I talked to said, look, they felt heard. They felt that they were able to say their piece. They just weren't able to convince the president, and he is in charge, and he made the ultimate decision. Now, towards the end of your book, we start to see things escalating between Russia and Ukraine, which brings us... To the present day, in what ways has Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine forced the Biden administration back to an internationalist approach? Yeah, I mean, look, after Afghanistan, there, this team really felt like they had something to prove, right? They, they still, again, as I said, agree with the strategic decision and why it mattered and why it was the right one, but that it didn't look good, right? And they didn't want history to remember them as the people who had the failure of Afghanistan as it's, as it's widely regarded. So when Ukraine comes along, Russia's invasion of Ukraine comes along, and they get pretty clear damning intelligence of what Vladimir Putin's intentions are. And so immediately they take some of those lessons learned from Afghanistan and apply them to Ukraine, which is start talking to allies now. And if we have to defend Ukraine, start talking to them now about what we can and we cannot do. Start telling the Ukrainians what we know. Start developing sanctions. Start developing a, perhaps a military or a military assistance plan. Start developing a messaging plan. How do we tell the world what we know and what's about to come? And also a diplomatic track. Fine. If the Russians are saying that they want to do this because of NATO expansion or, or you know, Ukraine moving further to the West, fine. Let's talk to them about it. How can we get to some sort of agreement so that we solve this at the table and not on the battlefield? And that was a lot of it was born from, okay, you know, we need more, we need better coordination, we need better messaging, we need a better sense of what we need to accomplish in order to get this done. And so this was really centered out of Jake Sullivan's office, but also, of course, in coordination with uh, the Pentagon, the State Department. And this really became the, the core of the Ukraine defense. This is the embryo of it. And a, and a big part of it was start talking to allies now, as we noted. And what was interesting is at the beginning, the UK was like, got it. We see the intel. We trust you. We, we, we hear you. France, Germany, we're a little we're – not, we're not convinced. They were skeptical that this intelligence was, was true, that there would be an invasion that, of the scale that they were seeing. And the Ukrainians were apoplectic. They thought that this was over the top. This wasn't true, uh, that the Ukrainians didn't have that kind of intelligence and that the Russians wouldn't do this. And it led to some like actual shouting matches between uh, Biden and, and Volodymyr Zelensky on the phone where Biden – excuse the sort of um, – you know. Uh, colloquial language, but he's like, dude, defend your country. You know, we see what's happening. You need to get ready because here's what's about to happen to you. Zelensky said, no, by you making these statements, you're hurting our economy, you're scaring our people. Of course, Zelensky eventually, you know, responded the way he had to respond, but it took a lot of, a lot of convincing and it didn't, he was not convinced until the tanks rolled in. Now, Alex, you finished writing your book well before October 7th, but you do mention previous outbreaks of violence between Israelis and Palestinians. But you highlight Biden's relationship with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. How would you characterize that relationship? 
you know, before October 7th and, and the, the Israeli response, I would say it was a fairly friendly working relationship. I mean, there was this, I forget exactly what it is, but Biden wrote something for Netanyahu that says, you know, Bibi, I love you, but I don't agree with you on anything. Mm-hmm. But they felt that they understood each other. They've known each other for a long time. They could work together. And in, in the violence you, you noted, in May of 2021, there was a much smaller fight between Israel and Hamas uh, that, you know, that ended in 11 days. And in part because of the strategy the Biden administration employed, which was you know, figuratively hug Israel in public, say they have a right to defend themselves, and then in private push them to end the fight. And in part because there was a progressive backlash against Israeli action, Biden said, look, you're losing the Democratic Party. Stop what you're doing. And that stopped in 11 days. And the Biden administration to this day feels that that was the right play. They employed it again. After October 7th, first it was literally hug BB, right? Biden went over there, hugged the guy, gave a speech in support of his self-defense. And now over time, they're saying, hey, you know, try not to go so hard against Palestinians in Gaza. Um, but they found that the context is, of course, different. The October 7th attack was so big. There's a far-right government that is, you know, and doesn't really want to stop this fight. And the Israeli public, still traumatized from the horrific October 7th attack, is supportive of the military campaign. So the U.S. is trying to find other ways to have sway over over Bibi here, but they're they're struggling. Some foreign policy experts argue that the Abraham Accords mediated by President Trump in September 2020 may have fueled some of the violence we're seeing today. And that was a bilateral agreement on Arab-Israeli normalization. It was signed uh, between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. Connect these dots for us. How could that agreement potentially be contributing to what we're seeing today? I'm not sure it's a direct contribution, but a lot of people, and myself included, pointed out that one of the weaknesses of the Abraham Accord, while probably a net good, right, to have uh, Arab countries be friendlier to Israel and have Israel more integrated into the region, that the problem was it did nothing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and that that issue was always going to be simmering and eventually boil over. Uh, this was all, And this was a problem in the Biden administration too, right? As, as much as they say now that they cared about the Palestinian cause, they started to, for real, about a few months before October 7th, as they were working on an Israeli-Saudi normalization deal. One of the, the elements of it had to include a clear pathway for a Palestinian state and, and ways to improve Palestinian lives in Gaza. Uh, that, of course, that was a bit too late. Hamas did what it did. There's quite, Biden doesn't said he doesn't have evidence for this, but he claims Hamas did it in part to scuttle that normalization deal. But regardless, the, to your to the general point, this was always the the issue with the Abraham Accords. While it still may be a net good, it ignored the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that had been ignored up to a few months before October seventh. And when we're seeing what we're seeing, not you know Hamas did what it did because it did what it did. They you know that was a choice. They didn't have to do that. But there are some who attribute it to the fact that. You know, had that issue been dealt with earlier, had there been more um, seriousness about engaging the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, trying to find some sort of solution, that maybe such an attack would not have happened. We got this email from Linda in Michigan who asks, has Alex read or is he familiar with Jacob Hilburn's new book, America Last, the right's century-long romance with foreign dictators? The GOP has turned from our nation's role in the world. Alex? I've read the book. I know the book. Uh, Jacob's a, a good analyst. Um <clears throat> I think it is true that there are some uh, – but I think it's gone a bit too far in the sense that, yes, there's no question that Trump has spoken kindly of dictators. and um, But I think that's just the way he does policy. I mean in this – in an America first worldview, you work with whoever and whomever to advance your own interests. And it doesn't really matter the values of that other – those other people. It is curious, of course, that he's kinder to dictators and autocrats. Uh, but in terms of American policy, we cannot deny that the history of American policy has been constantly working with dictators and, and autocrats and either to Im- bring them into office or, or removing them. Uh, so it's not necessarily a uniquely Trumpian trait. But it is interesting that, you know, 
when we're talking about values in American foreign policy, Biden upholds the small D democratic element of it. Trump does not. But they both feel that they need that certain element, either working with an autocrat or not, to achieve what they want to achieve in the world. Alex, let's head to a quick break. Still to come, the latest in the Ukraine-Russia war, the South Carolina primary, and what role foreign policy will play in the upcoming presidential election. Stay with us. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news. We take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to the discussion and welcome a familiar voice. Todd Zwillick is here to help us discuss the current state of U.S. foreign policy and what role it will play in the upcoming elections. Todd, it's great to have you back. Hi, Jen. So I, I want to hear from both of you because I know the conventional wisdom around foreign policy is that it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily a driving force during presidential elections. But Todd, is this a different year? It, it could be. And I think there are two major trends that you and Alex have discussed. One is the war in Ukraine. The other the war between Israel and Hamas so far. Look, nothing is written. So we're going to make predictions about what people will care about. We frankly have Mm -hmm. no idea, but we can only assess where we're at right now. Um, And and there's two opposite sides of the coin here right now. Let's talk about the war in Ukraine first. And I think Alex discussed America first philosophy, affinity for dictators and, and the differences between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in that regard. But what's playing out on Capitol Hill right now, both with impeachment and with Ukraine funding, has sharply divided the Republican Party and really highlighted what's been in the background ever since Donald Trump's rise to power in this country, which is not just his affinity for dictators, but his relationship with Russians. I'm not talking about uh, any, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia. I'm talking about evidence within the last week and a half that uh, the basis for Republican political strategy, impeachment over the last two years, may well have been driven by Russian information ops. Now, this information is pinging around Capitol Hill so far. Democrats haven't done very much to take advantage of this politically, but it all happens in the background of all the other events that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Donald Trump inviting Russia to attack NATO, Donald Trump saying nothing meaningful about Navalny's death, and in fact, branding himself a Navalny, a, a victim of, of autocratic regimes, which was, which was quite remarkable. And on Capitol Hill, Donald Trump's chief lieutenants are threatening the conservative Republican Speaker of the House with his job if any Ukraine funding passes. So right now, they're in a decidedly pro-Putin posture. Again, Democrats haven't done a whole lot to capitalize on that politically. Will they? I don't know. And the second thing, you really, you guys really hit it over the head, and you have to when you talk about Joe Biden. He is bleeding support right now with young voters over Israel and Gaza. What happens between now? Of course, we're covering the Michigan primary coming up next week, as you mentioned, Jen. But going forward to November, Joe Biden, I'm sure, with his campaign and with his national security advisors in the White House, are trying to plot a strategy to staunch the bleeding on the left. I think efforts like we saw in the U.N. last week where the United States for the first time gently, kind of almost covertly, even though it was diplomatic, said the word ceasefire in a diplomatic context. I think most Americans don't know about that. But that was a strong signal from the Biden administration to Benjamin Netanyahu and the right wing government there. And probably, Alex, I don't know how you feel about it, but presage is a real effort. Um, by a White House in a campaign that knows they're in trouble on this issue. Yeah, look, 
you know, foreign policy can't make a presidency, but it can break one. Yeah. And in the case of of you know Ukraine, I mean, if we talk, had this conversation a year ago, Biden was and his team were preparing for a re-election pitch where they would have said, "We are the steady hand on the wheel. We know how to run the world. We rallied the world to Ukraine's cause. We are going to be here to defend Ukraine for as long as it takes." And that's now changed to as long as we can, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because of of the House Republican intransigence at this point to pass uh, the aid, the sixty billion or so for Ukraine. So now, you know, Biden's signature foreign policy issue is is in their hands and they know it. So that I think that's part of their calculation. On the Israel-Hamas bit, I mean, this is, you know, if you ask, I bet if you ask Biden to tell him truthfully how, how you feel about this, I think he thinks he's nailing it. He's being both pro-Palestinian, uh, pro, both pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian about as much as he can be. And I've talked to uh, many U.S. officials familiar with, you know, U.S.-Palestinian relations and and uh, even Europe, senior European officials who have worked in the Middle East for years, and they say, look, the bar is low. But this is the most pro-Palestinian administration um, you've seen, in part because of the way that they are pushing humanitarian aid into Gaza, and they've been trying to make the Israeli uh, military campaign less than it could have been. But that's not as big, you know, but that's, again, it's a low bar, mm-hmm. right? And there have been past administrations who have actually conditioned aid to Israel and have put stronger restrictions on it. But that message isn't seeping through, of course. So, so- – how much is the Michigan primary this week a litmus test for whether or not the Biden administration is nailing it, as you said, as, as you think he he thinks he is? Right. I think it matters tremendously. And he's aware of the polls. I'm sure his team are aware of the polls, right, and and the, the upswell of anger. The argument I bet that they would make going forward, and it doesn't always work politically, is – well, you guys remember what it was like when Trump was president for four years, right? He wasn't pro-Palestinian at all. You imagine if Trump were president right now, how would would the humanitarian aid be flowing in at the rate it's flowing in? Would the Israeli military campaign be more all out? It's hard to prove a negative or it's hard to prove a counterfactual or you know, hypothetical. But I think that's what they're going to be saying is you might not like the way I'm handling this or you would have handled it differently. But Trump's going to handle it worse. But the that the other guy is worse argument doesn't tend to always fly politically. And there's no real easy answer here. So often national security imperatives, the best thing or the smart thing, the real politic thing to do in a conflict – is not necessarily the thing that does best with voters at home. I bring you the history of Vietnam. It's going a long way back, but Lyndon Johnson, for instance, took over as commander-in-chief in 1964, an extremely and increasingly unpopular war on his left in the base of his party. And he continued to escalate, continued to escalate because he believed it was the right thing to do. He believed it was necessary from a strategic, American strategic standpoint uh, to win that conflict and to help South Vietnam, oppose the Russians, etc. And get to 1968, the bottom dropped out from his support for those decisions. Whether it was the right decision strategically, I think history has shown that maybe it wasn't following Republican president, Richard Nixon executed that war for another five years, but it was Johnson's undoing. It was in March of 1968 that President Johnson in the Oval Office looked into the camera and said, I will not seek the renomination. I will not accept it. That was Vietnam. And that was, they're they're not identical. They're analogous. And it just, I think, instructive of how national, a president's decisions for national security can be difficult, sometimes impossible if you're not careful to reconcile with shifting domestic politics. I mean, it, it makes me wonder, Alex, as you were reporting this book, what is your big picture view of how much substantive difference there really is between foreign policy under Trump and foreign policy under Biden? Quite a bit. I mean, look, there's more similarities than the Biden administration would like to admit, right? 
immigration, for example, right? A harsher border, which they were, were open to making even harsher, more restrictive immigration practices. Uh, deglobalization, the fact that it's no, this free trade and, and free flow of capital can't happen at all the, all the time anymore because China's taking advantage of it. American jobs are, are being lost. We've got to protect national security specific industries. The harshness on China, right? And, and the comp- competition with China, that's also a continuation, although a ramp up under Biden with the export controls on national security sensitive uh, instruments and the fact that they've got allies on board with also following along with, with these things in telecommunications. But major differences too. For example, I don't think you would have gotten at you know COP, the, the International Climate uh, Forum, you wouldn't have gotten them to say it's time to move beyond fossil fuels under Trump administration. You also wouldn't have had the, ra- the rally behind Ukraine uh, and the, the rally of the West if, that you would have had – that Biden did. You wouldn't have had that under Trump. You wouldn't have had the, the strong pushback against Russia, although we should note that the Trump administration itself did push back pretty strongly against Russia even though Trump personally against Putin did not. So – there's more continuity, I think, than change, but the changes are pretty significant because this is really about where America stands, which is a pretty big one, the role of alliances, and about American values. And so – and by the way, I'm not necessarily advocating for one or the other. I'm just saying that the, the Biden team believed that in order to save internationalism, to save a more traditional – foreign policy. They needed to update its software for the 21st century. And part of that update included bringing along more elements of Trumpism that I think they would like to admit. Well, earlier this month on the campaign trail, Donald Trump stirred up controversy and directly challenged Article 5 in the NATO charter, which we discussed a little earlier. And, and this is the concept of collective response to an attack on a NATO ally. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. So his comments drew ire domestically and from NATO allies. But what about from American voters? Well, one thing I didn't mention just a couple minutes ago when we were talking about the divides among Republicans in Congress over Ukraine funding and Donald Trump's comments is Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley was just in the South Carolina primary. She got trounced as predicted, not as badly as the polls predicted, by the way. It was about a nine-point difference, so keep your eye on how bad the polls were in South Carolina. But Nikki Haley is still in the race. And increasingly over the last couple of weeks as she's ramped up her rhetoric and her criticism of Donald Trump, this very statement and Donald Trump's very position – about Vladimir Putin, about how great Putin is, or about saying nothing about um, Alexei Navalny and his death and the death of dissidents, or or flipping the script to make himself the victim. Nikki Haley has been increasingly sharp on these issues, and she just raised $11 million. She says she's staying in the race uh, up until and after Super Tuesday. And when you talk to people on exit from South Carolina, Republicans, the numbers, I was surprised by how high the numbers were just in South Carolina, one state, of people who said they're not interested in voting for Donald Trump in a general election. Nikki Haley got about 40 percent of self-assigned Republicans. That's a lot of weakness in Donald Trump's camp, in his base. Now, are those all those people Joe Biden voters? Probably not. Does some of them come home to Trump? Probably. But 40 percent is a huge number. And this is a key factor, among many other things, in her very vocal criticism of Donald Trump. Nikki Haley is there to say, maybe it's for 2028, I'm a national security Republican. Republicans oppose Putin. We oppose authoritarianism. It's not all gone. American America First doesn't rule this party necessarily. Hey, Alex, when you think about 
the Bidens' approach to foreign policy, um, the changes they, they tried to make, sometimes unsuccessfully, from Trump policy. What does it say to you about the U.S.'s ability under a specific president to, to switch directions? Because I mean, when I think about foreign policy, I think about a will that turns very slowly. So how much redirection can a country, can the U.S. make under any given president? Well, I think you saw during the Trump years, it could be pretty significant, right? But even, however, he had people around him that wanted to stay in that general American historical through line. The question, of course, of a second Trump term is, is he going to have those traditionalists, let's say, around him? And if he doesn't, I think you could see a pretty massive uh, change. It will be interesting to see the role of Congress here, which for years has said we want more control over foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera, um, if they actually try to exercise that in, in, in a Trump presidency if we get there. But I think at the end of the day, Biden and Democrats sort of see it the way Obama tried to explain it and, and, and people around Obama. Derek Chalet, who's currently at the, at the top person at the State Department, wrote a book about his years in the Obama administration called The Long Game. And his basic metaphor was, you know, what Obama wanted to do was turn American foreign policy two degrees, but eventually the ship arrives at a much different destination. And I think that's how Biden team sees foreign policy in this case, right? They want to continue the traditions of it. Biden is a traditionalist. A lot of people around him are traditionalists. But there are things that need degrees of change. And that's what they've tried to do here. And they hope that those degrees of change eventually influence American foreign policy over time. But that is dependent upon the next president or the next administration being someone who agrees with that general view of traditional American foreign policy, which Trump does not. And he is a one-man red team, and he will try to find different ways to do things. And one could imagine that America, this is an, I know this is overused a lot, an inflection point type mm. election, but I can't imagine another election, on foreign policy at least, where it's as this stark and this clear difference and that America goes one way or goes another, depending on who ends up in the Oval Office uh, in 2025. I mean, Todd, and as you're looking ahead to November, there you mentioned the the impeachment, you, you the revelation that this FBI informant that's accused Joe Biden and Hunter Biden of taking bribes, uh, the DOJ says he's been in contact with high-level Russian agents and it has been lying. It just feels like there's a lot going on right now. So what are you watching between now and November, but specifically through that foreign policy lens? A whole bunch of things. I am, like I just said, watching Nikki Haley and how sharply and how publicly she criticizes Donald Trump. I'm frankly, once Nikki Haley is done mm -hmm. with this tour, watching what she does with her notoriety. What does she do uh, in terms of her vote and who she says she's supporting? I think it will be important whether it uh, creates a permission structure for Donald Trump and this foreign policy or whether she says, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I, I don't know what Nikki Haley is going to do. I think that type of permission structure thinking from Republicans who say they're opposed to Donald Trump is going to be important. And lastly, I am watching the last couple of weeks. What do Democrats do, if anything, to exploit or create a political issue out of some of the shocking revelations in the Hunter Biden, by the way, he's testifying this week behind closed doors on Capitol Hill. What do they do, if anything, to create um, politics around the fact that it appears, it appears that Russian disinformation has been driving Republican political strategy for years? That's 1A's Todd Zwillick. Also with us, Alexander Ward. He's a national security reporter for Politico and author of the new book, The Internationalists, The Fight to Restore American Foreign Policy After Trump. Alex Todd, thanks for joining us. A reminder, we just launched 1A+. When you join 1A+, you get to listen to our show sponsor-free and you're supporting our work. Go to plus.npr.org slash the 1A to find out more. 
Today's producer was Emilce Quiros, and this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.